0: Hello and welcome to the Holistic Healing Project with me, Dr. Lauren MacDonald. Each week, I will be sitting down with a range of experts, thought leaders and other inspiring humans to explore how we can all bring more healing into our lives. I believe we all have the capacity to self-heal, to experience more joy, greater meaning and deeper connection. I really hope these conversations inspire and support you on your own journey back to wholeness. Welcome back to the Holistic Healing Project. This week, I have got a fascinating conversation to share with you. Dr. Jeffrey Rediger is a psychiatrist, medical director. He holds a Master's of Divinity, and he's the author of a new book, *Cured: The Life-Changing Science of Spontaneous Healing*. Dr. Rediger has been studying spontaneous healing, or you may know it as spontaneous remissions, since 2003, looking at the science behind why some terminal patients not only fail to die from their disease, but they actually go on to heal and thrive. So during our conversation, we explore the key mind, body and spirit approaches that Jeff has identified as helping these so-called spontaneous remission patients. So whether you're ill or you're just interested in optimising your health and wellness, I'm sure you're going to find this conversation fascinating and enlightening. As always, if you enjoy it, please go ahead and rate and review as this just keeps helping share the podcast with more people around the world. Hi Jeff, thank you so much for joining me on the Holistic Healing Project
1: I'm really happy to be here.
0: So, I have just been blown away by your book, and I have so many questions to ask you. It's just honestly such a wonderful piece of work. And I'm just fascinated as a psychiatrist, how did you find yourself studying spontaneous remissions?
1: Well, it's a great question, and I had my resistance to it initially. I uh, was approached by an oncology nurse at Mass General in 2002. She asked me to speak with her son with her, and she wanted to talk to him about her diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. So I did that, and then she went to a healing center in Brazil and began calling me saying that she was seeing some amazing recoveries, and she hoped I would look into it. I said no. (laughs) I was a new faculty member uh, at Harvard and a new medical director, and I had just graduated from residency not that much uh, prior And I didn't think anything real was going on down there. Most likely, I was very skeptical about that. And I honestly also was concerned about what my peers would think anyway, and my colleagues. So I said no. And then she was persistent. She began having people call me from around the country and elsewhere saying that they had medical evidence for their recoveries and did I want to hear their stories. And I said no again. But as time passed, I began to see these letters coming in, some of them with some medical records, and I began to realize there's something going on here that I didn't understand. So I did end up going to Brazil eventually.
0: And this kind of study of spontaneous remissions has taken you all around the globe now, hasn't it? Seeing hundreds of patients.
1: Yeah, I've, I've seen well over 100 patients who have hardcore medical evidence for recovery from illnesses that in traditional medicine, I have been taught were incurable. And so I had very strict criteria because I didn't think anything was likely to be going on. So I told people I wouldn't even look at their stories unless they had a genuinely incurable illness according to all that we currently understand. And number two, they had to have medically indisputable evidence for accurate diagnosis and clear evidence for recovery. And then number three, there couldn't be any other competing explanation such as an experimental medication or anything else that can potentially explain how they got better. So that ruled out, those three criteria ruled out most of the stories that came to me uh, because usually there are some complicating factors uh, such as chemotherapy or radiation that could potentially explain their story and that sort of thing given the diagnosis. And so many, many cases that have been referred to me or sent to me I didn't look at, but of the ones I did look into more deeply, well over a hundred met those three criteria
0: and it wasn't just patients with cancer was it you you looked at patients with various different illnesses, things like um bipolar and lung fibrosis
1: yeah, I looked at uh, mostly the the ones that I built the book around um, and the ones that really have changed the way I understand things, all were physical illnesses uh, with those strict criteria but there certainly have been other cases that didn't have that kind of evidence or they were psychiatric and still had remarkable recoveries but i didn't recount those stories in my book
0: and for anyone listening who doesn't understand what the word spontaneous remission or i know in your book you kind of call it spontaneous healing could you just explain to the listeners what that means
1: yeah so spontaneous remission is a remission that occurs for a physical illness. And we don't have an explanation for it the word spontaneous in this uh, use means without cause and in med school we're taught that spontaneous remission is a fluke with no medical or scientific value i think in retrospect everything has a cause and so it's an unscientific attitude to assume that these stories don't have a cause now if you're on the science side you call these events spontaneous submission and you conclude there's nothing else to look into because it's just a fluke. If you're on the spiritual or religious side, you call these events a miracle or spiritual healing. But I think what's true is all of these terms are black boxes that we've never unpacked with the tools of science. Everything has a cause, and we just never have asked how these events occurred.
0: Out of interest, how has the book been received by your colleagues? Because I know this is, you know, the idea of spontaneous remission is quite a- you know, it's a, it's an issue, isn't it? People don't really want to talk about it. There's a lot of resistance. So how have your colleagues taken it?
1: Well, so far, I feel so blessed and fortunate because I've had only positive responses. Uh, now, I think it's, I had a lot of uh, anxiety about publishing these results uh, over the years, because there has been resistance in the past. I think the world is changing. I think that uh, the medical profession knows we need to think more broadly, and I think the whole world is moving in the direction of it's okay to investigate well-being and do science around well-being and healing in a way that was not possible 10 years ago. So I think academics, physicians like myself, are now slowly finding a place where there's more freedom to ask these kinds of questions, and that's fabulous. Nature is a very uh, scientific publication and they just gave a very positive review of the book this past week, which meant a lot to me.
0: Mm, Congratulations, Noel. It's just such a brilliant book and I love, I guess because you're coming from this science lens, although you come across as a very open-minded physician, you obviously are just accepting and aware there are things beyond what we yet understand it just really comes across in the book that we need to just keep exploring and like you said just keep asking questions rather than shutting it down so in the book you've described four key pillars that although not all patients you came across maybe explored there was four pillars that you seem to have identified and I'd love to dive into those if you're happy to do so.
1: Oh absolutely.
0: And it's as a patient myself as someone who's had cancer stage four cancer I did find it really interesting because I can see myself and the actions I took in every single one of these pillars Um, and obviously I did receive conventional treatment as well I had immunotherapy But, you know, there was only a 20% response rate, especially a complete response rate. So I I couldn't help but wonder, you know, was the fact that I found myself in this 20% because I'd done all of these other factors as well. So it was really, really interesting for me. So the first factor was... That most patients seem to do anyway, and I guess it's the gateway to people's healing journey because it's so accessible and it enables you to feel empowered, is healing our diet, which I know is so important. Could you just explain a little bit more about why that is such an important factor?
1: Yes, I will. And, you know, it's so fascinating to me to realize, as a result of interviewing so many people who have these remarkable recoveries, that As a physician, I was given a lot of misinformation about nutrition when I was in medical school. And I think I'm not alone in that. I think a lot of us who are physicians and even nutritionists sometimes are given misinformation. And we are not really aware of how much processed food fills our daily lives. And I now, in retrospect, see how unconsciously I lived around all of that. So I tell people... A couple of things about nutrition. First of all, it's not like there's one particular diet that you have to follow in order to get better. Uh, Every person is different in terms of their ancestral background, what parts of the world they come from. Our microbiomes um, are different based upon the experiences we've had in the world and our habitual habits of nutrition. But there are patterns. And whether you eat meat or not, for example, I tell the story in Cured of people who got well by going vegetarian and the pieces of that. And I also talk about people who went with a more ketogenic diet and got better. But no matter what the diet is, there there were some real similarities underneath the, the surface. And most of these people gave up processed foods and sugars and refined flours. That's, that's a really big statement. It was shocking to me to realize how much Processed foods, sugars, and refined flours were a part of my daily life, and I went for a number of years without really uh, paying attention to how often I would pick up a brownie in the nurse's station or a piece of pizza and, and that sort of thing, and I just assumed that I ate fairly healthy, and I think most people think they eat healthy, and they actually don't, so avoiding processed foods, sugars, and refined flours is a really big deal you know, over 100 years ago, most of us in the United States ate approximately four pounds of sugar a year. Now, in modern times, we eat closer to 154 pounds of sugar a year, and sugar is very inflammatory for the system. It's something that we could talk a lot about, but it's a big problem. And so I tell people, avoid processed foods, sugars, and refined flours. If you want to eat meat, eat animals that were happy when they were alive not flooded with stress hormones, grass-fed so that you get the healthier fats, and not stuffed full of chemicals. That's how I summarize, real briefly, nutritional recommendations.
0: And although you say that not all patients address all key pillars, was diet quite often the one that came up as a main pillar, or did it really depend on the patient?
1: It depends on the patient. I purposely tell stories in the book of people who didn't make any nutritional changes and still got better because other pillars are so important. But nutrition's a big one. And as you said, it is a gateway for a lot of people because it's the first tangible thing that a person can change after they've gotten a a really difficult diagnosis. And so, you know, 88% of people do become vegetarian according to one study. So a lot do, but not everybody does. And I think as the research continues to unfold, we'll see that there are a lot of people who also get better using a ketogenic diet.
0: Yeah. And I I tried a range of diets when I was unwell. I think the first, you know, I went very strict vegetarian to begin with. I even went vegan for a while and then I shifted back to kind of more of a pescatarian Mediterranean diet, which is where I am today, that felt more aligned. I, I struggled with the restriction of a strict vegan diet. And food for me is such a source of pleasure and joy that I guess relaxing my, how strict I was being around food was actually very healing in itself.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. That's a critical point, because I think if a person makes a deep change in their nutrition from a place of fear, that fear is going to Work against you. You know, I think you're right. Whatever change a person makes needs to feel like it's for you. And you were really paying attention to your intuition and how you felt about the changes you were making. And you made the changes that felt like an opportunity rather than a restriction. And that I think is brilliant and critical.
0: Yeah, I think it was definitely a process. I started off very fear based and yeah. very strict and yeah it was a journey to get to a point of actually listening to what my body needed as well the nutrients I could tell I needed because you start to crave certain things I think as well your body's kind of giving you these signals and then it became a much more enjoyable you know I went back to really enjoying food again so yes yeah, very personal as you say but it's that tuning into our bodies for sure.
1: Yeah I think that's such an important point about tuning into our bodies and following our intuition and you did that beautifully it sounds like.
0: And then obviously, so I was focusing on my gut microbiome, which you mentioned. So I was eating lots of fiber. And I know that's just a great way to support your immune system, which was really important for me when I was on immunotherapy. Yeah. Other ways that you mentioned in the book, it's not just, you know, about diet and reducing inflammation, improving our immune system that way. Another key pillar is reducing our stress or at least healing our stress response. So would you mind describing a little bit about how we, I mean, how do we go about reducing our stress response?
1: That's a great question. You know, we have to remember that some stress is good. Um, I get a little concerned when I hear studies or talks that talk about the need to just eliminate stress. We all need stress. We need challenge stress that helps us grow and learn. Running a marathon, for example, can be great challenge stress if it helps you reach your higher self and expand your understanding of what you're capable of. But if you are in a toxic relationship or in a work environment that leaves you depleted at the end of every day not knowing your value and worth then something needs to change because you're not going to be able to heal properly you will be in chronic fight flight or freeze and that will mean your body is secreting these stress hormones like cortisol or norepinephrine or adrenaline and when that is bathing your bodily organs and your immune system your body can't heal the way it needs to you need to change your environment or your relationship with the environment
0: and you describe quite a few patients who you know they make in the midst of this huge say cancer diagnosis they leave Mm -hmm. jobs or leave toxic marriages and on one level I I completely understand that maybe if the very thing that they think is contributing to their illness, say a toxic marriage or or whatever it is, they need to press eject and get out. But actually it's quite a stressful experience in itself, isn't it? Uprooting your your life in the middle of what's probably the most stressful experience of your life anyway. So I find that really interesting that people are, I guess, brave enough to do it, but they're really following their intuition.
1: Yeah, it's a very good point. I mean, these are very real world stories, right? And so... These kinds of things are messy, and a person sometimes has to go through more stress in order to get to the end goal. But if a person is doing something, if they're leaving a toxic relationship or work environment, there's also a liberation that can be occurring as well. And so a person needs to make sure they have the support to follow their intuition. But people often know when you get down to the bottom of it, what they need to do, and a person can tolerate more stress for a time-limited period if they know that it's not good for them to be in that relationship or environment.
0: And I guess we talk about the importance of social support and connection when we're going through these experiences, but actually if the connection and the support isn't positive, it's probably detrimental anyway, so you kind of do need to get rid of it. That's right. Just moving on, because... I know that you do talk about love and connection in the book and I really loved that you took a deep dive into this because it's something that's not talked about enough, the fact that love Mm -hmm. is a very healing kind of process in itself so yeah one thing i particularly liked was you mentioned the micro connections of love that we all experience in our day-to-day life and that can be with our uber driver or when we're sat on a park bench and someone comes to sit next to us and that actually has a really positive effect on our body's physiology so would you mind just explaining how we can kind of tap into love tap into connection to help ourselves heal
1: so i think what's true is that a lot of us are spending more time in chronic fight, flight, or freeze then is healthy for us, whether it's sitting in traffic or stress at work. Our bodies are built to be in fight or flight when there's an acute threat right now in front of you. You know, the savannas of Africa where we come from ancestry wise, if there was a tiger or something, then you would have a fight or flight response that would activate all of your uh, physiology to deal with that threat and then after that you would relax and your body would go back into parasympathetic mode which is a relaxed state where healing occurs in modern life there's a lot of stresses that are more chronic and a person can feel stressed at work if they are questioning their value you can sit in traffic for an hour at a time or two hours at a time challenges managing kids and work and bills and all the different things and so there's a lot of us that have a physiology that's chronically stressed and in chronic fight or flight. The parasympathetic is the opposite physiological response and that's for healing. And that is associated with what I talk about in Cured as the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is a very big nerve that goes through the middle of your body and reaches out to all of your organs and it helps you heal. The vagus nerve is what turns your Listen to a smile when you make contact with a person. Uh, the vagus nerve is what causes your eyes to make contact with a person when you are trying to connect with them and express affection or connection. And that's that's the vagus nerve. What we know is that the more we connect with others in a way that feels very loving and free that is great for our physiology and it has a very different hormonal response in our body than fight or flight. And so those micro connections of positivity resonance that you mentioned a minute ago, where we see somebody on the street and we have maybe just a brief interaction with them and we smile and make a genuine connection. Or if we talk to the postman and make a brief connection that's real and authentic and loving those are fabulous for our physiology and they pull us out of fight or flight and out of our anxieties and help us just connect the more we do that the more benefit we get physiologically
0: I also really love that you you talk about love and talk about connection, but you also talk about the physicality of the heart itself and you touch on broken heart syndrome, which is something I have always just found fascinating. The idea that stress can actually lead to essentially heart attack. So how does that work? What what is it? What's going on there?
1: So uh, there's a number of different ways we could talk about that. One story that I tell because it affected me deeply, uh, because it captures a lot. So my work as a psychiatrist, part of the time every day is spent in a medical hospital. And several years ago, there was a woman that came in that captured a lot of what I see on a daily basis. Her name was Eileen. and I tell her story in the book. She was a 64 year old woman who came into the emergency room with chest pain. So that uh, meant that she needed a cardiac workup. So that's a two day um, event. Typically she was, admitted to the hospital, she was worked up cardiologically, and they didn't find any problem with her heart, but they started to suspect that she might have had a panic attack, which can feel exactly like a heart attack. She thought she was going to die. The chest pain was very severe, and so they had me see her, and then I, I asked her, so what's been stressful lately? She broke down and said that the day before she came into the hospital, her husband had let her know that he was leaving the marriage and moving to Florida now. She's was 64 She had been with her husband since age 15. She'd never been with another man she had never slept alone in a house before without her family or her husband and The day before she came into the emergency room with chest pain. He had said he was leaving her so she spent that night at home just Devastated couldn't really imagine what her life was going to look like without him and came into the hospital. Now she was an old school Catholic. She didn't think that there was any connection between what we were talking about and her chest pain. And so she didn't want to do any psychotherapy or uh, get any help. So she went home. She reappeared in the emergency room again with chest pain one month later. And this time she had atrial fibrillation, which is a very dangerous heart rhythm. And so then she had to be put on heart medications So what you raised um, about the idea that our anxieties and our fears can have a direct effect in our heart is very true. There are people who we do see in the hospital who will literally have what we call a broken heart. It's It's a form of cardiomyopathy, actually, where a very, very severe stress or a person who feels things very deeply and is very sensitive will have a significant cardiac effect from a stress.
0: And it's a perfect example, really, of the mind-body connection, isn't it? The fact that yeah. your, what's going on inside your mind, you know, your thoughts, your feelings, it can actually really impact your physiology. I know it's bidirectional anyway, but it's very much the mind affecting the body, which is just so fascinating. And yeah, something I know for a, lo- for a long time, it wasn't really well-researched either. It was another area of mind-body medicine that was ignored, really fascinating to hear these stories I know friends who've um, also come across patients very similar very similar stories husbands leaving them or essentially just a big trauma and then maybe not having the coping skills maybe not having the social support and then impacting their physical health so moving on into that sphere really it's you know we've discussed nutrition as a tool of healing and the fact that healing our stress response and I'm guessing when you talk about parasympathetic and getting ourselves into that state we can do that through things like meditation, mindfulness, yoga. Are they the kind of typical tools that most patients used?
1: Yeah that's certainly something that people use a lot. I I think that uh, learning how to relax so that we are in a more parasympathetic healing state is important And then this other pathway where we also can connect with genuine love and connection with others, that also has a parasympathetic effect. So you're right. It's both pathways. Relaxation and connection and love uh, are something that our body is very wired for.
0: Mm. And then we move into the next pillar, which is really beliefs. And how, you know, Mm. it, it seems that a lot of patients take a deep dive into kind of mental and spiritual health and make huge changes, a lot of them as well. So can you explain a little bit about, I know it's such a huge topic, but just how belief can impact our physiology?
1: Yes, this is a big one. And this is the pillar that is so important that there were some people I interviewed who didn't even make any nutritional changes and still had a healing. I think it's because they changed their beliefs about themselves and the world we live in at such a deep level. So what does it mean to heal our identities? It means that you begin to see and focus on what is right and good about you, and that you actively eliminate false beliefs that cause you to question your value. One of the most common things that people have said to me over the years is that it took an illness for them to wake up and realize they needed to stop taking care of everyone else they needed to stop responding to the perceived expectations of others and begin focusing focusing instead on creating a life that really focused on their well-being that helped them come alive so what is a life worth living for you you know what is a life that puts a light in your eyes what's a life that's authentic It's fascinating to me that so many people told me that being diagnosed with a deadly illness was in some ways, at some level, it was fearful, but it was also a relief because I'd had people say to me things like, well, now I don't have to be the doctor that my parents wanted me to be, or I don't have to please this person. I can be what I want to be. And even if I have only six months or two years left, I can do what I believe is right for me. And so, That's a fascinating statement. And I think that what's true is a lot of physical and mental illness, either one of them can occur if we're living a life that isn't authentic to us, that doesn't have to do with our own well-being, our own dreams. And so I think people, when I talk to them about this, they often say, well, that would be selfish if I did that. And it does seem selfish to people at first because of the way they've been trained or raised in their families or cultures but it's not as my friend gabor Monte says he's a physician that lives in british columbia he says if you don't know how to say no your body will eventually say no for you and i think that's what happens in some of the illnesses that i see so i tell people that yeah we'll help you develop a selfish bitch project if that's what we need to do we have to help you begin building a life on your own well-being on what gives you life And I can guarantee you uh, what I've seen over and over is that when people make the hard choices to set up that kind of life for themselves, it's absolutely true that it changes their relationship with themselves and their relationships with others. And when that occurs, it's sometimes astonishing what happens in a mind, in a body, and in a life. It's the linchpin for incredible changes for people.
0: One of the patients in the book, Mireille, really Marie um, Bonnell. Yeah. yeah, she really touched me. Just because, obviously, we had both had metastatic melanoma, both stage four, and her story really resonated. And the fact that she really saw her disease as a wake-up call, you know, I really resonate with that because I've definitely changed my life in a lot of ways. And this idea of identity and healing your identity as a tool for recovery is so interesting. Yeah. I wouldn't have put it that way um, until I read your book, and then suddenly it was mm. all kind of falling into place as I was reading well her story, and then other patients like Jerry with his renal cell carcinoma, right. healing people that you wouldn't necessarily think would would take these paths, and then going on this journey of really self-discovery isn't it, and asking the questions It really is what's what's yeah, right for me. It,
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think that a number of the people I've studied, so many of them decided that the illness was a message that something in their life needed to be addressed and maybe it was out of whack. And so they tried to listen to what might need to be addressed in their lives. And that took them on these journeys that, you know, it's so fascinating to me. So many of these people have over and over and over told me they are so grateful for the illness because It has given them such a different experience of themselves and the world they live in, they wouldn't change a thing because they love their life and who they are so much more than was their understanding before the illness.
0: Definitely. It's a process, isn't it? You don't, at the moment of diagnosis, you're not feeling exactly like that way. But yeah,
1: it's devastating.
0: Yeah. And then I I really, I definitely feel that way myself that it has, I've got, it's taken me to a point I I couldn't have imagined. Well, first of all, living the way I am, I've got a lot more freedom. I'm not in a formal training pathway, psychiatry training pathway Mm. at the moment. I've taken a lot of time out of training and I've just been able to do the most amazing things. I went off and, I did my yoga teacher training in India. That was actually partway through wow. my, my cancer treatment. I'm currently in Australia, living here for six months. You know, there's a lot more freedom and adventure and excitement. And of course, I am returning back to my psychiatry training, but it's it's just freed me up. And I'm, I feel very alive, which I know is something that comes through in the book, that uh. a lot of these patients are are healing themselves, healing their physical body. But more than that, they're really mm. coming into alignment and finding what, Brings them alive and what fulfills them. And that's definitely the path I'm on now as well.
1: Yeah, you have such a great story.
0: <laughs> yeah, you should have come knocking on my door. We could have had a chat for sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Maybe for the next book. <laughs> yeah. um,
0: one thing I'd love to dive into with you is the, the idea of identity being something that it's important to heal. But also you talk about disrupting the DMN, which is the default mode network. Oh, yeah. And I've right. heard a lot of that, about that recently in terms of psychedelics. You know, I read Michael Poland's book and he talks a All lot right. about how psychedelics actually work. One of the theories is that they essentially dampen the default mode network, which is essentially our ego, really, isn't it? It's the part of the brain that's our ego. So in Mm -hmm. what way do various, you know, I just mentioned that I've been off on these adventures, I've been doing lots of things. And I know in the book that you say one way to disrupt it is actually through travel and new experiences, which I hadn't heard of before. So would you mind explaining a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah. So the default mode network is a fairly recently discovered Uh, circuitry in our brain that involves a number of structures. And it has to do with the uh, habits that we develop over time. And it's really helpful to develop a lot of reflexive habits. Uh, When we drive, we can rely on our default mode network to do a lot of the work to get us to our destination and that sort of thing. But it's more uh, complicated and not so much uh, an advantage to us when we have the habit of automatic thoughts that run us down or that cause us to question our value and to assume that maybe there's something wrong about us or not good enough, that kind of habit, that kind of default mode network is more problematic for our health and our well-being and our vitality. And so you're absolutely right that things that get us out of that, whether it's dance or meditation or travel or doing new things so that we start to experience ourselves in the world differently. Those are ways to get out of the default mode network and begin developing a different kind of brain structure and perception of who we are.
0: And you do talk about that a lot in the book, the idea that perception is really key. And mm. as an area I found interesting as well was the idea that we need to unhook our identities from the illness. So for a lot yes. of people, Potentially, an illness actually starts to serve a purpose. And it's a reminding yourself that you're still whole and complete without that diagnosis. And really asking, you know, I know you ask a lot of questions in the book. And it's it's that encouragement to say, you know, what is this, what purpose is this serving for me actually holding on to this identity?
1: Yeah, that's well said. I, I have come to believe over time that these illnesses that we have, when we get them, they're not nearly as fixed as we often think they are. When I have seen a person with an incurable illness get better, which was not supposed to be possible, get better, and then when they go back into uh, a toxic marriage or work environment and they get ill again, and then they leave and get better again, that has caused me to view these illnesses as being much less fixed and much less central to our identity than I had thought as a physician. They are a message to us, but they aren't part of who we really are, is what I've come to believe.
0: And another thing you touched on in the book is the idea that actually Well, the idea of death is very important to address and heal because Mm. it's really a doorway to living a life of freedom. And obviously, for some patients, you know, spontaneous remission, even if it does occur, it's not a guarantee that it will continue. We're all inevitably going to die at some point. But a lot of patients turn towards death rather than away from it. And that's healing in itself, which I find. So powerful and so interesting. And I know in the book you say that sometimes to heal your identity and find that authentic self, you need to first pass through the difficult portal of facing and accepting your own mortality. You know, you say um, patients had a get up and go attitude, which was really important. So I guess there's a fine balance, isn't there, between having this get up and go attitude and then this acceptance and surrender on the other hand?
1: Yeah. Yeah it's a big topic and you know i start off the book talking about claire who was diagnosed by biopsy in 2008 with pancreatic adenocarcinoma, which is the most serious form of pancreatic cancer and she was told that she had a matter of months to live she expected to die and like many of the people i've interviewed they expected to die it wasn't like they were trying to cheat death or get better initially Um, but she wanted to live as well as she could for the months that she had left. And so she decided she didn't want to, uh, get the surgery or the chemotherapy or the radiation because she wanted to focus on life. She had been told that for her diagnosis, there wasn't a lot of options. The treatment would, might prolong her life for a few more months, but it wasn't going to change the, the total picture. She was still going to die. And so in her particular case, she decided that she just wanted to focus on being with the people she loved for the short amount of time that she had left. She didn't want to sit in doctor's offices around other people who were dying. She wanted to, to have a good quality of life for the little bit of time she had left. And then she started to uh, decide that she wanted to finish well. And so she started to forgive herself and other people for some of the things that she'd been through in life, and then she started to make some nutritional changes, and and then after a while, time began to go by, and then in 2013, she had a abdominal CT for unrelated reasons, and the cancer was gone, and of course, she was shocked. That was five years later, and so I, I begin the book with her story, and I end the book with her story. It's it, 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 Her story captures so many things, but Her relationship with death is something she talked a lot about, uh, about how to die well.
0: Um, I don't want to ruin it, but it's, you know, she's just one of many patients you talk about, but the cancer does return, doesn't it, at the end of the book?
1: It it does. She's still alive, and there's uh, discussions that she's been having with me about all of that. She's retired in her mid-70s, and she was uh, diagnosed in 2018 with a recurrence of cancer, but, you know, this is now two years later, and she's still alive and deciding what it means. And it's a deep spiritual journey for her. And she, she believes that she has chosen this path, and she has deep peace about all of it. She should have been dead m- many years ago, and she should have been dead this time around, too, and she's not. So <laughs> mm-hmm. It's quite a story.
0: It is, definitely. I mean, there's so many stories like hers in the book that are just so moving. I mean, it must have been a really emotional journey for you to be interviewing all these people.
1: Yeah, it really has been. It's been life-changing for me, both personally and as a physician.
0: Has your research changed how you live your life? Is it possible to pinpoint key things you've changed?
1: Yeah, things have changed for me at every level. Just talking about the nutritional piece, uh, I lost 37 pounds years ago just by changing what I was putting into my body. My numbers were going up. My blood pressure and my cholesterol was going up. Those are all normal. I am healthier now. People say I look younger than I did years ago, which is true. Now I eat well. I exercise. I have a much better understanding of what's important mentally and spiritually for me. I've been inspired to heal old conflicts within me and from past relationships, and all of those have turned out to be really liberating. They took a lot of work, honestly. I have quite a difficult past I came from myself, and that drove, that gave me the passion to look for answers, and these people became a source of fabulous uh, new insights for me.
0: And have you become a more spiritual person as the years have gone by, the more people you've interviewed and heard these stories?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think what's true, you know, I come from a very rural background. I um, had an Amish background. Uh, grew up on a farm, and we didn't have access to normal TV or radio or even store-bought clothes in the world I was in. But it was also a world with a lot of trauma, a lot of really difficult situations, and and in the search for what was true and to figure out all of these different pieces. I ended up going to seminary at Princeton before med school. And then I went to med school once I became convinced that science is a great gift to the world. And then after all of my education, I ended up doing this research. And what I've come to believe is that for hundreds and thousands of years, uh, and even longer, culture has been locked into a deficit way of understanding the human person. For example, religion was... Uh, The world I was raised in was more about original sin than about the fact that every person is created in the image of God. Medicine is slowly moving away from a disease model towards a model that actually also has room to look at well-being. That's moving in a positive direction. Psychology has spent many, many decades reducing problems of living to childhood deficits, overvaluing that, even though that's important. Psychiatry historically reduces human problems of living to neurochemical defects. Those were all a negative way to understand the possibilities and the potential and the goodness that every person brings into the world. And so my thinking as a physician, as a psychiatrist, and as a theologian have all been transformed by seeing the kinds of deep changes in perception of themselves and others that took place in many of these healings.
0: And how important do you think faith is? Because I know in the book, it seems to be that the ones who had a deep faith in the treatment that they were having, yeah. that they were the ones that had the greater likelihood of remission. And I yeah. know you talk about, yeah. is it Dr. Nima? who, mm-hmm. Yeah, who yeah. I found fascinating. Would you mind just speaking yeah. a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So Dr. Nami is a physician in Cleveland, Ohio. He was trained as a surgeon, but uh, he also is a healer. And so he does do healing work with people he has an amazing ministry with so many people who have had unexpected and unexplained recoveries and so he's been a a good person for me to speak with because he's also trained in the western scientific and medical tradition and understands very much the importance of science as i do and the importance of traditional medicine but also that uh, that there's more as well, and there's there are mysteries in the world, and faith is important. And faith, superimposed on a lot of fearful or shameful beliefs, might not help you as much as it would otherwise, but faith rooted in a deep experience of gratitude and an awareness of what's right and good about each of us has transformative potential.
0: And that's different to the placebo effect, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it it overlaps and it's different, and I think we need a lot more research to continue characterizing the differences and overlaps between each of these, whether it's faith or belief or placebo, there's a lot of overlap and also distinction. I think what's true is as physicians, we're taught to not give false hope, and that's all well and good and important, but it's also important to provide genuine, grounded, hope that's built on medical evidence for people. And so I find in my work that that we don't not get false hope, but that we do give grounded ethical hope that's rooted in medical evidence. And that hope and faith are what help people find possibilities that they did not know existed.
0: And what's your stance on doctors giving patients their prognosis? Because I wasn't actually given a prognosis, but I went away and researched and it looked like I had about 12 months. And, you know, Mm. I'm sure so many people do this, but I refuse to believe that. I thought, I'm not a statistic. I am a person. I am doing all of these things to help myself heal. But I know for a lot of people, they do actually get given a prognosis, especially if it's, say, under six months. And I, I know it's, you know, so that they can spend more time with family and get their affairs in order. But it sounds like there's increasing evidence that actually what's going on inside our heads, our beliefs, our thought processes, they can really affect our bodies. And I know you give an example of in um, is it China, there's a family where they don't actually tell the patient her prognosis. She has lung cancer and the doctors say, you know, she's probably right. got about three months. And because in that culture, it doesn't necessarily have to be that the patient is found, finds out first. It's actually the family, and then the family decide whether to tell the patient. Right. And she goes on for years, doesn't she? she right. Because she doesn't yeah. know, which is, you know, <laughs> right. how interesting. And that just shows that sometimes, you know, I know everyone's individual, but what do you think about prognosis, and should we be telling patients?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think as a physician, I want everybody to have uh, full information, and that's certainly how... We tend to approach things in America. That being said, our beliefs and our fears and our perceptions have a huge amount to do with where things go. And so I believe in full information in the right situation in general. But I think we also have to begin understanding uh, the role that belief plays. And we also have to remember that that doctors take these statistics from a lot of data. And then when we say that a person has 12 months to live, well, that's the average. And so the people that I study, these ultimate achievers in health, they were screened out in the data because they don't fit around the mean very well. They're the ones who the research is not looking at because they don't fit around the mean. They're the outliers. And so I'm a big fan of saying it's important to know what the average person does, but it's also important to know what the outliers do and what the ultimate achievers in health do, because they do things very differently. And if I know if I was ill, I'd want to know what the average is for my survival with a particular illness. But I'd also want to know what the ultimate achievers in health have done because they have not been studied at all. And it turns out they do things very differently. And so many of us are not average at all. And we're none of us are average in all ways. And it's just important to stand apart from the averages and realize that we're different from that. We're different from a statistic.
0: And you really highlight that it's about making ourselves as a patient an N equals one study really, an individual yes. trial, because I'm guessing, did you go into this work and this research looking for maybe a you know, a one size fits all prescription that you could then say to patients, look, these are the check boxes that you need mm. to tick and then you'll hopefully find yourself um, healing. But actually it's such an individual journey, isn't it?
1: it really is i think if if we begin to accept that maybe the illness i mean dis-ease disease means dis-ease in your in your soul and in your psyche at some level what is causing dis-ease in your life and then just ask that question i think what's true is the body keeps the score if a person has been through different traumatic experiences different kinds of abuse or different kinds of really difficult kinds of adversity if those aren't dealt with in a way that one heals, they will wear on the body and the psyche and create inflammation in your body. And then down the road, you can end up with an illness. And the illness is an opportunity to listen to perhaps what you haven't been aware of or paying as much attention to. And when that's addressed, it's really astonishing what can change sometimes.
0: And do you you feel you've almost got to the bottom of it, or do you feel there's a lot more that you still want to research in this area?
1: Well, I want to keep doing this work. You know, this has not been really mapped before. No one's ever collected medical evidence for people with recovery from incurable medical illnesses and really tried to track this out, as far as I'm aware. And it's been life-changing for me to do this. It's an unmapped terrain, and so I feel privileged to begin mapping it, but there's a lot more to map, and we need others to map this as well, there's a lot to learn yet. And so I think what I've gained so far is a beginning and we need to continue to map this whole area.
0: Mm, Definitely. And I'm sure actually having the experience of speaking with you as a patient who maybe didn't feel their experience was validated or listened or really Mm. um, celebrated, I guess, because coming a patient with spontaneous remission or so-called spontaneous remission, I know we say now there's actually, you know, there will be an explanation behind it for everyone. But to sit down with you and really have their experience explored must have been really healing for the patients as well.
1: Yeah, I think... To just ask just the simple question, as strange as this sounds, to just sit down with a person or a patient and say, so what's been stressful lately? And then try to really understand what the story is in their life. It, It is so important because it's not just about the symptoms and it's not just about the medication. It's not just about the diagnosis. There's a story going on. And to come to understand the story is so important for people to understand the deeper story of their lives.
0: As we said we haven't, you haven 't managed to get to a one size fits all prescription, but for anyone right. listening who maybe has a chronic incurable disease, just pim, you know highlighting and pinpointing that you know areas to address are maybe diet, stress response, immune system, and then that bigger piece, which is belief and identity personally i hadn 't ever thought about my identity as something that I needed to heal, but i 'd naturally done it without realizing. And, yeah. so, and, you know, this right. isn't just for, for people who are ill as well. This is really an invitation for anyone who wants to live well and to potentially not get sick in the future. These are things right. that anyone can be doing, can't they? They can be really kind of tuning into their authentic self and living from a place yes. of alignment, which I think is really wonderful and powerful as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely true. And I think healing one's identity is another way of walking around this big subject of love. And what is love and what does it mean to feel unconditional love for yourself and for others and the physiology associated with that is so different than a fearful or shame-based physiology and so healing and identity is is a, a huge piece of what we are talking about when we talk about the changes that love can bring into our lives
0: it's mm-hmm. so beautiful as well. I just think it's such a lovely way to, to explore this whole field, which, as you said, it's, it's huge, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot more research coming out in this area in, in the next few years. Yeah. Yeah. So just finally, I ask all of my guests, what does holistic healing mean to you?
1: Well, that's a good question because I think um, what we are taught in Western culture is if you have a medical problem, you go to a physician. If you have a psychological problem, you go to see a psychotherapist. If you have a spiritual problem, you go see a priest, rabbi, imam, or minister. But I think what's true is that if a person goes to these experts and these experts only speak from within the narrow blinders of their profession, You're not going to stand back and see the forest for the trees because it's a lived life that all of us live and what we need is help activating all of the different pieces of this into a wholeness. The psychological interacts with the physiological, interacts with the spiritual at a really deep level and our vitality and health are created based upon how we bring those together. And so we need experts who stand back and not only do their piece with the blinders on but also stand back and see the big picture and we need to help people see the big picture in their lives so they can activate their spirituality and their psycho their psychology and understand the relationship of that to their physiology so they can find a path towards vitality and wholeness that really helps them awaken to a life that has meaning and value to them and where they know their value.
0: Yeah, that's so beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Was there anything else you'd like to share that we haven't covered during our conversation?
1: Well, I I think that for a person to know their value and to know that they bring something of deep worth into the world, in a way they don't need to question and that they can build a life on that both consciously and unconsciously and where they spend time on what creates well-being for them and not just responding to the perceived expectations of others. I think that's a path that invites deep healing at many levels into a person's life.
0: Yeah. Well, just thank you. The biggest thank you to you for spending, what is it? Has it been 17 years you've been studying this area. Yeah. I mean, a yeah. huge amount of time and effort. And the book is fantastic. So for anyone listening, we've been talking about Cured, the life changing science of spontaneous healing, and it is a brilliant book. So yeah, I just thank you. It's been fascinating for me as someone who's had cancer, but also as a doctor, mm. really interested in the mind body connection. And the yeah. fact that you just bring in, you know, the mind, body and the spirit. And this is the way medicine's going. I really hope that we're going to keep just growing and growing this field. So thank you so much for all your work in this area.
1: Well, thank you for your great questions and for having me here.
0: For those of you who'd like to take a deeper dive into your healing and transformation, I would love to invite you to join me on retreat in Bali this April. The Reconnection Retreat is being held in Ubud between the 18th and the 24th of April, and we still have a few spaces left. So if you're feeling a bit stuck, maybe going through a life transition, or maybe you just want to reconnect with your true essence and come back alive, then this retreat might be exactly what you're looking for. The reconnection is a journey from disconnected to reconnected, nourished, and aligned. Through yoga, meditation, breathwork, movement, and other unique workshops, trips, and ceremonies, we help guide you back to yourself after all the relationship with yourself is the most important one you will ever have so many of us are disconnected and we just need that time and space to find ourselves really tap into what's true for us and then we can go back out into the world and shine our truest expression so, if you're interested, please get in touch. You can head on over to my website at drlaurenmcdonald.com forward slash retreat for all the retreat details. And otherwise, just send me a message either via Instagram or an email and I can get back to you. I really hope you can join us in Bali in April. Please remember that whilst I am a qualified medical doctor, I am not your medical doctor. So whilst we often talk about health and well-being and we give out tools and tips and sometimes discuss topics that are a little bit fringe or alternative, this is very much for information only. It is not individual medical advice. So please, if you have any health concerns, make sure you go and see your own practitioner.